If you have your Bibles with you, open it up in the Old Testament to the book of Leviticus. Definitely an interesting, interesting book of the Bible. All kinds of great history and guidelines and insight uh, on many different things from our diet to our ethics to how we worship to how we budget and all, to infectious skin diseases and mildew in your clothing and how to do your laundry and everything. It's all in there. It's interesting stuff. We're going to be spending some time in Leviticus um, this week and in the next couple weeks. Um, as you're turning there, and, you, and if you have a bulletin, you should have received it on your way in, there's a folded sheet of paper in there that has the Echo logo on it. There's some notes that you can follow with. We've come to the, the teaching portion of this morning. If you're new with us, we are very serious about two things, being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And you become a disciple, the way you grow in your relationship with Jesus, it sometimes happens through education, through things you learn. It happens through experiences that you have in life, and it happens through relationships. All those things are important. The next, you know, 25 or 30 minutes or so, we're going to be focusing in on learning from the Bible today. So um, we're beginning um, a four-part teaching series called Economic Atheists. Two years ago, I taught a series called Economic Atheist, and it, it occurred to me a few months ago that um, there's, it's necessary probably for us, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to come back to this idea of economics and financing and budgeting and resting and working because it's a big part of our lives. It's probably uh, important for us to come back to this regularly and revisit and revise it and make sure we're always keeping in mind what it is that God has to say about economics and finances because quite frankly the Bible has much to say about the matter. So before we dig in this morning, uh, a couple quick questions that I'm going to ask you. They're yes or no questions um, and I'll invite you to participate in a quick survey by the raising of your hands. Uh, question number one, how many of you say I would like to live with less stress over money and finances? Raise hand. Okay, me too. I'd put both hands up, okay? Uh, second question, how many of you would like to learn how to live with more room in your budget for living, for saving, for spending, and for giving? Me too. Absolutely, absolutely. Last question, how many of you would like to say, I would like to learn how to get out of debt and live with more freedom in my life? Okay, some of you are already there and say, I've already gotten out, but some of us are still in that process. Well, me too. And um, here's the good news. Over the next four weeks, if you'll stick with us over these four weeks, we're going to talk about how to get there. Sound good? We're going to talk. Sound good? Because the Bible gives us clear pathways how to get there. The Bible gives you clear pathways how to live with less financial pressure in your life. If you'll just follow the guidelines the Bible gives you. It says very clearly. The Bible gives us very clear laws and fences and guidelines and principles to show you how to have more margin in your budget every month for living, for saving, and for giving. The Bible also gives us very clear pathways how to get out of debt and not get back into debt again. And so we're going to, some of it's kind of common sense, some of it's revolutionary, but it, the Bible has much to say about this, and we're going to dig into that this series. Because really, finances and money, it, it's on a lot of our minds. It's on most of our minds most of the time. In fact, for probably a lot of us, when we daydream in church, it's going towards budget and finance and money and work and, and how we're going to make this all work. So I think, I think if we will just come to the Bible and submit ourselves and listen to what it has to say, there's going to be great energy and excitement and relief and correction and teaching and encouragement for us to be able to get some momentum in our financial lives. Does that sound good to you? Does that sound good to you? 
I can preach about something else other than to have health in your financial life if you want. But I think that this is really central to a lot of us. In fact, it would probably lessen my counseling load by about a third to a half if we would just listen to what the Bible says and do it. Amen? All right. Well, let's dig into what it has to say. When the economy and when your budget slaps you in the face, what do you do to deal with that? I want to suggest a five-word strategy to you. It's not in your notes. You may want to write this down. When finances slap you in the face, here's the five-word strategy. Dig in and dig out. (laughs) Dig in and dig out. When you're going through financial difficulty, the worst thing you can do is ignore it and do nothing. Or sit back and wait for somebody else to fix it for you. Or try and win, you know, just, you know, put it all in the lottery plan. You know what that is? Well, by God, if I win the lottery someday, I will pay off all my debt and I'll buy Echo at church and this and that and the other thing. (laughs) We make all kinds of plans for what we do if we just had a windfall of money. But that only happens for very, 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 very few people when, in fact, the Bible gives us principles and guidelines because God wants your harvest to increase. Did you hear me? God wants your harvest, what you reap and you reward. He wants it to increase. He says it very clearly. Why do we get all nervous when we talk about finance in church like the church and God want to take away from us? God wants to give. And he wants to increase, and he gives us guidelines and principles to follow. And he says very clearly, I'm going to put up fences of my favor and blessing. And you can choose to live inside the fence, or you can choose to live outside the fence. It's up to you, but he's going to tell you and define where the fences and the boundaries are where we can have increase. So here's a question I have. When it comes to digging in and digging out financially, when it comes to digging in and digging out of your budget, of debt, of saving, of all the different things the economy can go up and down with. Are we left totally on our own to figure this out, or is God intimately involved in the very real arena of finance? I will tell you, he's intimately involved in the arena of finance. Did you know that the Bible says more about the economy and finance than prayer and faith combined? Did you know that? If you added up all the different scriptures, if you looked word for word, paragraph by paragraph in terms of content, the Bible speaks more about economics and finance than faith and prayer combined. Does it mean that it's more important? That's not what it means. But when you say, Pastor, I don't think we should talk about this in church. You should stick to the Bible. If we stuck to the Bible, we'd hear about that two to one for everything else. So let's look at what the Bible has to say, and let's be inspired and encouraged and corrected. Let's put the words we just sang into practice. If he really is Lord of all, then he's Lord of my checkbook too. Or if you don't use a checkbook anymore because they're outdated, he's Lord of your debit card and of your finances. He's Lord of those things too. Amen? Amen. All right, let's look at it together this morning. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 23 through 25. Here's our text for today. This is God giving instructions, laws, guidelines, and fences that give clear understanding to how we treat things like economics. Here's what he says to Israel. He says this, When you enter the land and plant fruit trees, leave the fruit unharvested for the first three years and consider it forbidden. Do not eat it. In the fourth year, the entire crop will be ready for harvest, but that first crop must be consecrated to the Lord as a celebration of praise. Finally, in the fifth year, you may eat fruit. You can finally reap and reward from what you've worked so hard for. If, listen to this, if you follow this pattern, your harvest will, what's that next word? Do you see this? If you follow this pattern, your harvest will increase. Does it say decrease? 
Does it say that you will struggle? God says, if you trust me and you follow this pattern for economics, your harvest will increase. I am the Lord, your God. So here's where we're going to go over the next four weeks. What are the four most defining questions about economics? What are the four questions of the 40,000 questions you and I could ask about money and financing and saving a debt? If God could take four questions about finances and elevate them above all others, what would those four be? If you could take four questions, teach them to your kids, teach them to your grandkids. If they could get these four questions right, they'd be financially right and never go wrong again. I'm going to give them to you right now. Here's the four we're going to go after over the next four weeks. How you work, how you honor, how you budget, and how you Sabbath. How you work, you want to write these down. How you work, how you honor with a pen or a pencil or a marker or a crayon. If you have a crayon, that's awesome that you carry crayons with you this morning. It's fantastic. How you work, how you honor, how you budget, how you Sabbath. Say it with me. How you work, how you honor, how you budget, how you Sabbath. These are the four defining questions that determine with great accuracy whether you will live a life of financial freedom or a life of financial pressure, whether you live a life of financial contentment or a life of financial discontent and anxiety, whether you, whether you live a life that is free from debt or a life that is deeply indebted, digging, digging yourself deeper and deeper into a hole you don't have any plan to get out of. These plans form the core of this, and the Bible has much to say about these things. So we're going to go after the first of four questions today, how you work. So aren't you excited you came to church to forget about working? And we're going to talk about how you work today. So welcome to the Economic Atheist Series and welcome to talking about how you work. Let me give you a little background because I know some people get nervous about us going Old Testament on this. Um, because there seems to be this emerging theology that the Old Testament has nothing to do with us today and we should just cut it out and get rid of it and that we are under no obligation to understand what the Bible says. And if I had 45 minutes to talk about this this morning, I would build for you a very compelling case as to why that's completely untrue. But let me give you just a little bit of a background to this this morning. Leviticus is part of the first five books of the Bible. We have a special term for the first five books of the Bible. Does anybody know what that term is? Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible, which are, say them with me, those of you who know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Book number one is Genesis. We found out that in the beginning, there was God. God pre-existed. God always existed. God had a great relationship with mankind in the beginning of Genesis, but mankind ruined the relationship because of sin. But God decided to rebuild that relationship through a man named Abraham and made a covenant with Abraham to build a new nation that would model everything that God intended. That's kind of the summary of the book of Genesis. Then the second book is what? Exodus. Exodus. Now we, in the book of Exodus, you see this nation who is now called Israel is now in a foreign country called, starts with E, ends with Egypt. Egypt, very good. And in the book of Exodus, it's a story of God rescuing the Israelites from slavery and God establishes himself as their ruler. Then we get to the third book, the one we just read from, Leviticus. In Leviticus, very interesting book, God establishes his contract with the Israelites. He establishes the rules and the principles and the fences for righteousness. In Leviticus 18, 1 through 4, God draws a line in the sand, and here's what he says. The Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God. 
So don't act like the people in Egypt where you used to live. And don't act like the people of Canaan where you're going to live. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey my decrees, for I am the Lord your God. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you'll find life through these things. I am the Lord. Here's what God is saying in Leviticus. Live like theists in a world full of atheists. He set up what's called a theocracy. A theocracy is a government where God is the ruler. It's not a democracy where we get a vote and tell God. It's not, it's not all these other world systems. It is a theocracy. And in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were involved in a theocracy. They became his subjects. In the New Testament, we are part of God's rule because we become part of his family. God is our ruler. He is the Lord of everything. And what he's saying to the Israelites is, in this theocracy, in this contract, here's the deal. I'm going to give you laws and fences and guidelines and rules to keep you inside the fence and the boundaries of my favor. But in order for this contract and this covenant to work, you must obey everything that I say. You cannot live like an atheist. He's saying don't live like everybody else is living. Live like you believe you're in relationship with me. Do you know God's still saying that to us today? He's still saying to us, you must live like a theist in a world full of atheists. You must live like somebody who has a relationship with God, regardless of what the politics or the government or the prevailing thought or what social media or, or Hollywood or those people of influence. Not, we're not here to live like the world lives. We're here to live like God tells us to live and be an example for the world to see us and come into a relationship with God. You must live like a theist in a world filled with atheists. And so in Leviticus, God sets up fences. If you imagine this platform that I'm standing on is a big fence, what God is doing throughout Leviticus is he's giving them fences. He's giving them rules and regulations and guidelines for how to do everything from their hygiene to how they work to their economics, to how they worship, to how they treat family. He's giving them guidelines and fences. And what he's saying is, I want to bless you and I want to give you increase. And that happens inside the fence. Inside the fence is favor. Outside the fence is cursing. The curses come outside the fence. Inside the favor, inside the fence is life. Outside the fence is death. Inside the fence is feasting and blessing, and outside the fence is famine. And some people take this extreme view of the Old Testament, and they say, this is just a big bully of a God who says, do as I say, or you'll be cursed. That's not at all what he's saying. What it's saying is, do as I say, and you will be blessed. If you listen and come into relationship with me, there is blessing for you here, but if you so choose You can live outside the fence of my favor. And really, if you read the book of Numbers, what happens in the book of Numbers is the Israelites start deciding which fences they like and which ones they don't. And they pick and choose. We like this fence. We like the fence of favor of hygiene, but the one of budget we don't like so much. We like this. And they start picking and choosing which fences they like, and they end up in a bad spot. And then we have the book of Deuteronomy, which means to do over, and God gives them a do-over. Aren't you glad that God gives us do-overs? I'm glad God gives us do-overs. I've needed a whole lot of them in my life. So that's what we see here in Leviticus. Leviticus gives us the foundation for Christianity and Judaism. And if you don't understand the first five books of the Bible, you don't understand much of Christianity. It gives us the foundation from which we live our lives. And it talks a lot about understanding how we work. In your notes, let's go after this. How do we work and what do we see in Leviticus 19? God gives us the economic cycle. 
He gives it to us right here in Leviticus 19. This talks about how we work. This is how you and I work, how we get things, and how you and I work things. It really boils down to three words. This is how you grow your life. It's right here in your notes. I'll give it to you right now. Sow, grow, harvest. Is that simple enough? Three words? You got it? Sow, grow, harvest. Say it with me. Sow, grow, harvest. So let's talk about these real quick. Sowing, really what we're talking about here is plowing and planting. Yay. This is also what we like to call hard work. Yeehaw. What God is saying is the economic cycle starts with sowing, with plowing, with planting, and with hard work. That's where it begins. He says when you go into the new land, the first thing you have to do is plant fruit trees. How many of you have ever tried successfully or unsuccessfully to garden? I've tried unsuccessfully for the last 19 years of my life. I've spent many, 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 many hours plowing and planting. It's not fun. Hurts your legs and your back. It's digging up those roots that wind for 800 yards around your entire yard. It's reading labels that you don't understand. It's hard work. And he prepares the Israelites, if you're going to get ahead in every arena of life, whether it's growing plants, whether it's working, whether it's getting to a point in life where you can retire, whether it's buying and owning your home, listen to me. It involves hard work. Amen? Or it's supposed to involve hard work. I know there's a category of people who don't think it should involve hard work. They believe in entitlement. Just skip over that and have someone else give you the harvest you deserve. The Bible says you plow and you plant. And then after you sow... God says you have, what's next? Grow. Guess what growing involves? Weeds and weight. Hooray. How many of you know when you're trying to grow something, between the time you plant it and when you harvest it, there's weeding? I hate weeding. Oh, well, good. We're, we're, we're on the same page this morning. We've really connected on weeding. Now, I don't mind those weeds that are this big, but you can pull them out right here and they all disappear. It's those ones that are like, you have to dig down and dig down and dig down and you try and pull it out and the root is still in there. I hate weeding. I always have hated weeding. But in life, weeds happen. Things you don't want to come up while you're working hard come up and you have to dig them out and you have to deal with it. And between the time you plant the lettuce and when you can eat the lettuce, there is waiting. Weeds and wait. And we hate both of these things, don't we? We hate, oh, amen, okay, we're really, man, I should preach about weeding every week and we'd be really happy. But we hate both of them. Here's what God says, for the first three years after you move into the land, it's not going to be a real great time of harvesting. For the first three years, well, you say, that doesn't sound like a long time. You wait for three years for the fruit tree to bloom and tell me if it's not a long time. For the first three years, you have to let growth occur. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you've got to let that root system grow. You've got to let those limbs mature. You have to prune things. You have to weed things. Even though it looks like it's producing, don't start harvesting and spending everything just yet. You've got to let that thing grow and mature so that it can produce a residual harvest. And guess what? Year four, it's going to produce edible fruit. Yay! And what does God say you do with the first fruit you harvest? Do you take it and eat it? 
No. God says the first fruit that you harvest is made holy and set apart and given to God as an offering. Wow. What a greedy God we serve. (laughs) No. It just establishes the fact that at the end of the day, that plant, that ground, the ability to sow and plant, everything comes from God because we're theists. We believe that everything, the life I live, the skills and the abilities that I have, the ability to earn, the ability to work, the soil, the air I breathe, everything comes from God. And so by giving God the first portion, I'm not giving to a poor God who's trying to take what he doesn't deserve. No, 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 no. I give it willingly because he's God and I'm a theist and he says the first fruits belong to him. Now, if you and I wanted to make a business deal and I said, listen, I will give you $1,000 every day and every time I give you $1,000, I'm just asking you to give me $100 back, I'd do that deal in a heartbeat. I'd do it twice every day if I could. Because I recognize in this arrangement with God, God's saying, I will give you everything that you ever need. All I ask is for you to remember me and give the first fruits as an offering back to me. So grow. And then we get to the good one. Harvest, which is all about reap and reward. How many of you like the reap and reward stage? Oh, yeah, yeah that's awesome. That's where we spend and we buy and we harvest and we enjoy We love this season of life, don't we? But you understand, how do you get to harvest? Somebody has to sow. And somebody has to grow. And then, if you do these two things right, you get to harvest. Let me talk to 20-somethings in the room for a second. I say this to my son sometimes. He doesn't quite understand it. Um, You are not an asset just yet. You know, like to my son, I say very affectionately, you are a liability. <laughs> and I say that with all the love in my heart. <laughs> but my son is three. He is not at a place where he can contribute to the economic cycle so much. This is why it's important to understand this economic cycle, because here's the deal. When you're young, your parents and your society are sowing into you, so that by the time you get into your 20s, we hope you get into your grow season. Or at least the go season. <laughs> go, go ahead. Get a job. Move out. Go. I'm speaking on behalf of some parents and grandparents this morning. During your 20s and 30s, if you're doing things right, you should be in your sow to grow season. It takes a whole lot of weeding and it takes a whole lot of waiting. So that by the time you get to your 40s and beyond, you're in the harvest stage. This is why you can't leave your house in your 20s and live the economic lifestyle of your parents and your grandparents who should be in their harvest stage while you're still in your sow-to-grow stage. It's also why it's important while you're in your harvest stage of life that you're constantly putting back seed so that when you stop working, you still have something to sow and to grow so you don't deplete your harvest. It makes sense. This is the economic cycle that God's developed for us. Now, let me ask you a question. Which of these three is your favorite? Harvest. Oh, yeah. That's my favorite, too. It's awesome. But we are so enamored with harvest that we're at the risk of violating the very order and process of God. We fall so in love with harvest that we get outside of the fence of God's favor because we start to think that life should be all about the harvest. 
We become consumed with consuming as consumers. And we spend money that we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't even like. We spend money before we have it because we are not willing to work hard and wait to have things. We look at everybody else, many a times people who are either older than us who have worked hard for it or people who are of our age who wouldn't wait for it, and we decide we're entitled to have those things now. And that nation will eventually spend more than they make and bankrupt themselves and end up in a situation kind of like what we're in right now. If we don't honor God's economic cycle, so grow and harvest. So there is a solution to this. And the solution to this kind of was the inspiration for a very old Saturday Night Live skit. You know, a very old one, but it's funny. It's a little tongue-in-cheek. We're going to show it to you right now. See if this might solve the problem of the economic cycle. I invite you to watch and listen in. When you look at it that way, we can look at it again. No. <laughs> when you look at it that way, it is kind of almost mind-numbingly simple. But yet, why do we have such a problem with this? I'll tell you why. We've created a nation with the notion that it shouldn't be sow, grow, harvest. It should be harvest, harvest, harvest. Reap and reward all the time. And if you don't like this particular step, just skip it. If you don't want to work hard, just skip it. Shortcut the process. If you don't like to wait, well, just skip that step and shortcut the process. What we're doing is we're raising up a generation that teaches us that we should skip out of any part of God's process that we simply don't like. We're raising a generation to shortcut, to cheat, and to steal so that we think we can get ahead when really what we're doing is getting behind. And I know I I have to kind of hurry here, but I do want to at least raise this issue to you this morning. I hear a lot of parents A lot of grandparents and a lot of people who aren't parents yet who want to be make the following statement, and I'm one of them. I want to work incredibly hard and make sacrifices so that my kids, so that my grandkids can have it better than than I did. I think that's a very noble thing to desire. I think any parent who's worth their salt, any grandparent who's worth their salt, wants their kids to have it better than they do. But can I ask you a question about that? What are you really meaning when you're saying that? I'm afraid there's a lot of us who what we really mean is this. I don't want my kids to have to work as hard or to wait as long or to deal with weeds like I do. I want them to have this easier and faster and sooner and with less work and waiting than me. Do you see a problem with this? Do you see a problem for how this could really infect and affect a generation of people? You know why? There's a couple generations of us who look back at our own childhood with a twinge of bitterness. And our own upbringing with a twinge of bitterness. You know why? Because we had to work really hard. We had to really weed. We had to really wait. We weren't handed a lot. We had to work as soon as we were old enough to push a lawnmower. (laughs) We had to work for things and save for things. We didn't have college funds set up for us to go to school. We ha- when we were 18, we didn't have 12 years to live in mom and dad's basement to find ourselves. When I was 18, my parents lovingly said, listen, we're glad you graduated. You got two months to be out of the house. And I thought that was the worst thing they could have ever done for me. And I decided I probably better go to college because I had no transportable skills whatsoever. And I didn't have money waiting for me. I had, they, I had to work a full-time job while I went to college. 
and I had to take loans. And I had to work really, really, really hard to get and maintain scholarships. And I wasn't given a car, and I wasn't giving a calling card, and I couldn't go buy new clothes. And I had to work really, really, really hard to scrape and get by. And a lot of us look back at our childhood and our teenage years with a twinge of bitterness in our heart. Because we had to work so hard, and we had to fight for everything that we had. And we look back at it with misery, and we say, I don't want my kids to have to do that. Wait a minute. Can I ask you a question, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa? How did you get to the place where you are today? How did you get to the harvest stage? How did you get to the place where you can give your kids a better life and your kids a better grand life? Did you get there by skipping the sow stage? Did you get there by skipping the grow stage? Or did you get there by going through adversity, having to learn how to hustle, how to struggle, how to work hard, how to plow, how to plant, how to show up on time for work and put in an honest day's work and then some. How to work extra hard, not because you were asked it, because you were thankful for the job that you had. Did you learn to get where you were by shortchanging the process and buying everything that everybody else had before you had it? Did you learn how to deal with weeds? And did you learn how to deal with waiting? Did you face up to adversity and get the character that you needed to come to a place of harvest or reward? Here's the question. Are you helping your kids to get ahead by making it that they don't have to work hard or wait, or are you teaching them to cheat the process? What are we really doing? Now, I don't mean that this is a a black and white cut and dried case. I do not mean to suggest for a second, and please don't hear me saying that your desire to want to take care of your kids and help them with stuff is bad. It's not. God is our example. He loves to give good gifts for our children. I think we have to strike a balance between, because I hear a lot of you saying, well, is it bad parenting to let my kids struggle when I could do something about it? To let my kids struggle to watch them struggle through life and bills and making decisions when I have the ability. There's a difference between watching my kids struggle and watching my kids suffer. Struggling is when we're trying to be better and aspire forward in the face of adversity. Suffering is when something's being levied against me that's pushing me down. I don't want to see my child suffer. I don't like to see my child struggle, but there's benefits that come through overcoming struggles. There's a tenacity and a character that's developed by overcoming struggles. I'm not saying not give good gifts to your kids, but does your kid have to have the latest and greatest everything without having to work for it? Should your kid just learn that everything gets handed to them and they don't have to work? Because guess what? At some point, you're not going to be able to bail them out. At some point, you're not going to be around. At some point, you're not going to be there to be their safety net for everything, and they're going to have to produce. And guess what? If they don't learn how to work hard and to wait, and they think life is harvest, 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 when they inevitably have to produce, when they inevitably have to struggle, they'll shortcut and they'll cheat and they'll steal. They might not hold up armed robberies, but they'll learn to cheat their employer. They'll learn to cheat the process. They'll learn to just keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and spending and spending and spending. And then where will we put them? There's a balance between saying, I want my kids to learn some of what comes through with hard work and struggling a little bit and saying, I I want my kids to suffer. I don't want my kids to suffer. But I do believe in teaching them about the economic cycle of sowing and growing and harvest. Do they have to have the newest everything? Do they have to be in their 20s before they learn about what having a job actually is? Now, if you're doing things right, you're building this into their life. Truth of the matter, some of us as parents and grandparents haven't done this either. And we need to get our own game together so that we can model and be examples for our kids and for our grandkids about how God teaches us. These are things that you and I have to wrestle through and we have to think through. Is it really a bad thing 
for us to let our kids face some adversity and struggles every now and again. Here's what the Bible has to say. Romans chapter 5 says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials because we know they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. James, it says this, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow for when endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Here's the Bible says. The Bible says maturity grows out of adversity. Struggling sometimes grows us up in life. And it grows us up in Christ. At some point, my kids aren't going to have me around to bail them out. And then what? If I haven't taught Chase how to work inside of God's fence of blessing, he'll inevitably resort to shortcuts, cheating, stealing, indebtedness, trying to find a way to get ahead because we're raising up a generation that thinks, I don't need to sow, I don't need to grow, I deserve a harvest. And if I don't get the harvest I think I should deserve, then somebody owes me one. And that leads to a nation in the predicament that we're in right now. We've created an entitlement mentality that says regardless of how hard, as long as someone else is working hard, then why do I need to? As long as someone else is waiting around, then why do I need to? There should be enough going around that I can skip these two steps and just have this. And that's never the way God intended it to be. So you and I have something to do about that. So in your notes, we'll fast forward to the end. What is an economic theist? I'll give these things to you real quick to get you ready to write. What's an economic theist? It's a person who believes God is God and acknowledges that God governs their economics and personal finances. An economic theist is a person who believes that God is God and acknowledges that God governs their economics and finances. That God governs how I work. That God governs how I honor. That God decides how I budget. That God governs how I Sabbath. He realizes that all of my financial gifts, my ability to work, all of my income, all of that I have are gifts from God. He, doesn't, he says money is not God and I won't worship it. An economic theist says I can enjoy the money, the little that I have or the much that I have, and I can still have a satisfied mind. That's an economic theist. They understand why we work. They understand we work, the Bible says we work, out of necessity, the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. The Bible says I work because I need to eat and I have needs that I need to take care of. Work is the way by which I earn money, a means of exchange to live. The Bible says I work because it's part of my identity. You don't have to read too far into Genesis before you read that God created man and sent him to work. Part of our identity, the Bible says in 1 Peter, God's given each of us a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts and we can use those gifts well to serve one another. We work because it's part of our witness. It's part of our ministry. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, to make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business, we could spend a month on that one, and working with your hands just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not Christians will respect the way you live and you work and you will not need to depend on others. God says that we can show how good of a Christian that we are and how close we walked in by working hard so we don't need to depend on other people for a harvest we didn't earn. Generosity. The Bible says, I have been a constant example for how you can help those in need by working hard. And then we also work because it helps us build God's kingdom. It says if we seek God above all out and live righteously, he'll add everything else to us. So what's an economic atheist? In your notes, an economic atheist is a person who says there is no God over my finances. Now that's not what you were thinking. You were thinking an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. Well, an atheist is someone who says there is no God. An economic atheist might say there's a God and he's my savior, but he's not in charge of my finances. I decide those things. 
Is it possible that you're living like a theist, but you approach your budgeting and how you work and finances like an atheist? Is it possible? Here's really the the concluding statement I want to leave you with. If you talk and pray like a theist, but you handle work and money like an atheist, God is powerless in your life. I need you to let that sink in. I realize it's going to make some of you mad at me because you read this and you're saying, well, pastor, you might be referring to this. I'm not referring to anybody uniquely. This applies to all of us, you and me and everybody else. I've talked to you many, many, many times about if you want to have, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, he must become two things to you. Do you remember what they are? He must become your Lord and your Savior. That means I recognize that I, as good as I think I am, I am still falling short of the standard that Jesus set. I am broken. I've sinned. I've disobeyed God. I'm not perfect. I need a Savior. Now, a lot of us come to that one pretty quickly. But then we also, in order to be in relationship with Jesus and to be saved, we have to also make him and accept him as the Lord of our life. That means he is God and he governs everything. Not just one arena of my life, but the whole thing. Here's the, here's the truth. I want to leave you with this statement. The majority, listen to me, the majority not the minority of Echo Community Church is living outside of the fence of God's favor in their life, in the financial arena. The majority of our church, and we could probably say this in nearly every church in America, the majority of us live outside the fence of God's favor in our economic life. We pray like theists, we worship like theists, we serve like theists, but when it comes down to economics, we live like economic atheists. We really think at the end of the day, we can pick and choose how we treat money and how we treat the economic cycle, how we treat the way that we rest our bodies. We feel like we're somehow the exception and we come up with all kinds of noble reasons why. And then we wonder why we don't see God operating in our lives the way that we read he promises to. We conclude it doesn't work. Well, the fact of the matter is we're living outside of God's fence and he told us what results when we live outside of his fence. We don't get the full blessings of being inside the fence. Well, that's God taking away from me. The saddest thing is that we we rob and we steal and we withhold from God thinking that that's the way that we're going to get ahead in life. We think that if we keep more, we work the way we want to, we budget the way we want to, we, we Sabbath the way we want to, whether we want to or not, that that's somehow getting us ahead. That's the saddest deception of all. The truth is that's putting us behind. Come inside the fence of God's favor. This series is designed to invite you back inside the fence. So as our worship team comes in a moment of prayerful confession, can you consider, will you use this series to come back inside the fence of God's favor? Will you continue to come back each of the next three weeks to dig in and dig out so that when God reveals the guidelines, you're quick to obey? Will you be ready to take an economic stand in your own life personally if you represent a family or a couple I want you to see this, and I want you to go back to Leviticus. Whenever you're tempted to get mad at me, (laughs) I want you to go back to Leviticus and read the whole point for why God gives us these things. So that your harvest may increase. That's what this is for. So I want to invite you back inside the fence of God's favor. But you know what? You can choose to follow all of these guidelines to a T. But if you've never repented of your sins... If you've never invited Jesus to save you, if you've never chosen him to be your Lord, then all these things are principles. And at the end of the day, these things will work whether you're a Christian or not. These principles will just work. But they won't save you. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ saves you. So this morning, I want to invite you inside the biggest fence of all.
I want to give you a chance to accept, to respond to this message this morning and make him your Lord and your Savior. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me for a moment? If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but you want to, you've never said yes to him as your Lord, you've never said yes to him as your Savior, can I invite you inside the fence of God's saving grace this morning to become part of his family? If you recognize that you've fallen short of the standard that Jesus set for you, and you're tired of living outside of relationship with God, and you want to be in right relationship with him, you want to enjoy all the benefits and the blessings of being his adopted son or daughter that he makes as his very own. You want to be a co-heir with Jesus Christ himself. You want to know that when you, your time to leave this earth comes, that you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven and not separated from him in hell. You want to be able to, be able to enjoy life and be free to really enjoy this life that God's given you today. Here's the way there. You pray a simple prayer that says this. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe that I am a sinner and that I'm not perfect. So I accept the fact that I've sinned against you and I ask you to please forgive me. I invite you to come into my life and I invite you to change me and transform me. I want to accept the free gift of a new life that you make available to me. God, thank you for sending your son to die for me. And I recognize you are both my Lord, the one who governs my life, and you are my Savior, the one who lifts me up and saves me from sin and death. Today, I commit my life to following you, living according to your rules and your guidelines. And they will not be burdensome for me. They will be life and they will be breath for me. In your name I pray. Amen. Can I invite you one last time to finish off our calisthenics this morning to stand with me if you're willing and able. As we close our service, our prayer team is going to come here to the front.
budget and make an exchange. You might have to give up something you love like coffee, like shoes, like your 50th pair of shoes, like eating out whenever you, you might have to give up something you love for something you love even more, like being part of a miracle, like feeding hungry kids, like offering people hope. My son is three years old. It's three And do you know that if God, one wave of God's hand, my son grows up in complete poverty, right? One wave of God's hand, you and I grow up in complete poverty. And some of you came from some of those stories. I don't pick where I grow up. I don't pick some of the advantages that I have of being in this country at this time. But I will say this. I give you my heart. I give you my everything. And if there's something that I can do to be part of a miracle, that I'm ready to do that. My wife and I knew that this was that today was coming and we sat down and we looked at our margin and then we looked at another line item in our budget because our margin didn't let us give as much as we wanted to give. And so we looked in our budget and we said, you know what? We've trimmed it back as far as we can, but in this category, we could trim this back a little bit more to get to the place where we can give. And you know what? It didn't feel tough. It didn't feel difficult. I couldn't wait to come this morning and be part of giving. So if you want to be part of partnering with Feed One and you want to join Kendra and I in adopting this village, here's what I want you to do. You can read over this card right here. I'm going to start at the very top. It says at the top, I want to give monthly because you're going to give monthly. Every month you're going to give. You're not going to give to Echo. You're not going to bring a check here. You're not going to give online. It's going to go directly to Feed One. Okay, I want to give monthly and then you can mark the amount. Ten dollars feeds one child for one month. Twenty dollars feeds two. Fifty dollars feeds five. One hundred dollars feeds ten or other. It'd be helpful if they can be in ten dollar increments. So if you want to give this morning and you're ready to jump on and be a part of this, you would select that amount. And then you'd go to the next line. It says, please withdraw the amount from my account on the. You can even pick what date of the month and the ebb and flow of your of your budget where you would like that money to be withdrawn. It'll be withdrawn for you every single month. Goes right to feed one, gets right to feed those kids. I've been in the distribution center. I've eaten part of the manna pack that they feed the kids. I've seen the places in the schools. And just to be eligible to be a distribution center, there's management and oversight on the ground to make sure that every single kid that's supposed to be fed is getting fed. It's an amazing ministry. Then once you've made that selection, you're going to fill out some more information. Go to personal information. We need to know who you are. Not me. I'm not going to see this. But uh, your full name, some of you have some, we, we have a church filled with great first names, so your full name on there, your street address, the city, the state, the zip code, the phone number, your email address, and if you'd like them to send you updates by text message, you can mark that box or you can leave it blank. That's up to you. Then you're going to let Feed One know you're going to give them access to whatever, your, whatever payment method you would choose. If you'd like to put it on one of your credit cards and have it directly withdrawn that way, and you're going to pay the balance off in full every month because we're all Dave Ramsey graduates around here, right? Yes. Okay. Just making sure. You're going to fill that in completely. Make sure the authorized signature line that you do sign there, okay? But fill that in completely. Again, we're not going to look at it. I'm not looking at it. Or if you want it directly withdrawn from your bank account, either way, you'll fill in the card type, the cardholder name, the number, the expiration, the signature, the date, either one of those things. Well, Pastor Phil, I don't really like you putting pressure on me. Listen, if you're unwilling to give this morning, then don't. No pressure. The Bible says very clearly, you should be, when we give, it should be a cheerful, joyful thing, something we're excited to do. If you don't feel joy over this, is this just causing you stress and anxiety? Don't worry about it. There's no pressure. There's no judgment here. But I know that there's many, many, many in the house like, like me that say, I'm able, I'm willing, I can do this, I can do 10 bucks. 
I can do 10 bucks. That's two less trips. Well, for my family of three, now that my son started drinking Frappuccinos, that's like one trip to Starbucks for me, right? And I won't even miss it. I won't even miss it. I won't even miss it. So we want to give you a moment. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to finish filling mine out and give you a moment to fill yours out, and then I'm going to give you some further instructions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all that we have is yours. Thank you for the miracles in my life. Thank you that you provided for Kendra and I a child where there seemed to be no way for us to even get pregnant. Thank you for providing a roof over my head and electricity and clean water, the ability to have options in what I eat, to be able to go to a cupboard and choose what I want. These are all blessings from you. Thank you for our ability to work and to earn and to have, to have funds and finances to make decisions over. God, we release those things to you today, and we humble ourselves today. Many of us in the room have already said, I am willing and I am able to give. So now, God, to those, we ask you to speak to us, how many? How many kids do you want Kendra and I to take on? Or the other individuals and families in this church, how many? We will obey as you're leading us. We want to be part of a miracle. Some of us, you might even really be stretching us today, really stretching us to make a sacrificial commitment to this. But we believe you're big enough, you're strong enough, you're mighty enough. You've got a miracle already in your mind that you're just waiting for us to get in the path of it. And we want to release that miracle by getting involved in the stream of your, of your giving. And we know you're going to take care of our needs too. You're not a God who releases givers to give and then lets us, leaves us wondering about how we're going to take care of our own matters. You said if we seek you first, all those other things get added to it. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.